Hello and welcome to the Maidcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment. A series of lectures on video game history is part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. My name is Alex, also known as Red on this podcast. I'm Miles. And I'm Chun. Let's get to the news of the week. So this week, we have a few games from PS5 and Switch coming out. They're all the big titles. The first one is the Demon's Souls remake. Yeah, they have changed too much yet. You know, we, we got some experience like Final Fantasy Remake 7. So, mm-hmm. As far as the way it looks so far, it looks like the same graphical jump, like from the PS1 Final Fantasy 7 to the PS4 Final Fantasy 7, as from PS3 Demon's Souls to PS5. Everything just looks so insanely crisp and really fully realized, uh, which is, I think, something that's unique to that one as opposed to the other launch games because this is a PS5 exclusive. So it's not focused on being compatible on other systems, but Hyrule Warriors has also gotten my attention. I know it's gotten your attention, Chun. Yeah. <laughs> Because I have played Breath of the Wild, and that's actually the first game I ever played on Switch, and my first Zelda game Okay, ever. I was going to say, that's the first game you ever played? <laughs> no, just on Switch. I mean, that's the first game I ever get. Because everyone just tell me, if you, if you have Switch, just buy it. That's how good that game is. And I would say the same to anyone who just got a Switch, just buy it. It's worth anything. And it's not only my first game on Switch but also my first ever Zelda game. I have never touched Zelda series before. I have heard of it. I've heard of the main theme music because it, it's just so famous mm-hmm. and so many good, good things about it. But once I played Breath of the Wild, I was totally into the game and I become a fan of the series. So Hyrule Warriors is kind of a highlight to me and I have some friend already playing it. I don't want to spoil too much, but it's a game about the stuff happened before what you have been experiencing before Breath of the Wild. So there are way, way more character development than the previous game. And you can finally talk with them. That's all I can say. So I'm pretty excited about it. I don't want to spoil Okay. It. No, yeah, I'm very interested in picking what, it What up. is the Dynasty Warriors gameplay like? Because I'm, I'm not even aware of like how that game plays. So basically, you're... You're a very strong hero on the battlefield, and there are a lot of minions and enemies on the field. And you're so strong that you can just beat them like there's nothing. And you have to take some take some area. You have to take control of some area in order to win the game and fight some leader of the enemy. That's basically basically you're seeing a lot of a whole lot of enemy on the on your screen, and you gotta you gotta defeat them like as if you're just walking that's how basically how the game you know how you know how at the beginning of the lord of the rings the first one fellowship yes uh there's the scene where sauron is fighting all the armies of the good people of of middle earth yes and he is just wiping the floor with them with the big uh mace because he's got the ring that's you oh okay (laughs) it's very satisfying awesome it's a lot of fun (laughs) All right, thank you for putting it in words I understand. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that is that is exactly the visual. That's it. I like that. Okay, I might I might have to buy a switch now. Okay, we'll see. <laughs>
as far as talking more about Zelda, I believe it's also pertinent to that we're talking about Zelda because this week uh, we do have a special Patreon poll episode. Uh, this week's topic was chosen by our Patreon donors, and it is the adventure game. So talking about the history of the adventure game. I know we were talking about Zelda being one of them for you guys, but Miles, you had some big adventure games that you grew up on that you wanted to talk about too. Yeah, I first got into adventure games by watching someone play the remaster of the original Monkey Island. And I just got immediately hooked on sort of the gameplay style and the humor and the writing of those games that I had to go back and play all of the other ones. At the beginning of Grim Fandango, which is I think my favorite adventure game where you play a skeleton in the afterlife right off the bat you get a balloon animal shaped like robert frost and it's just like a why does this thing exist but later on you know you have a use for it it's always that kind of trial and error of okay i have a fire extinguisher i have a bouquet of flowers i have all these weird items you know i can interact with the world with in very specific ways having having writing that supports that level of wackiness and doesn't seem just like zany and but but like feels natural in the world is really hard to do yeah and LucasArts has really done a good job making those kinds of games my first adventure game is actually on back on the game boy that was made by capcom it was called a phoenix right oh yeah i played in japanese back into my child age so it's on Game Boy at by the time when I played it, and what what's what makes it even funnier is I couldn't read Japanese by the time I played it, but I was played it in Japanese. <laughs> so did you like? Did you yeah. have to look up translations for the story to like understand what was going on? A little bit, but it was like a miracle. I mean, I just read it, and somehow I somehow get it through. <laughs> I just absorbed the game. You just figured it out, yeah. Yeah, I don't know any of you have this kind of experience while playing foreign language game, but you don't know why, but you get it through. It just happens sometimes. Did you did you end up learning any <laughs> Japanese just by playing the game? I do. Actually, I no. do. Nice. Yeah, it's a pretty good way to le- learn Japanese too, but I really like that game and I play that game again and again. I think it's about time that we let Alex get into some real adventure game history. As much as we could have a whole podcast about us talking about the adventure games we enjoy, I think I also think some of our Patreon donors would like to hear about some of the history of them. In the meantime, I think it's time we let our visionary founder, Alex Handy, get in on his next tidbit of history. Hello, this is Alex Handy here to discuss video game history with you once again on the Maidcast. We've had a request from our lovely Patreon donors to cover the history of adventure games. So now that we have thoroughly covered the Atari 2600 and the prehistory of video games, I think we can safely dive off <coughs> into uh, adventure games. That story begins very similarly to the story of the first computer game, which was Space War. You may remember that Space War was created at MIT by the Tech Model Railroad Club on the PDP-1 and then was copied and distributed around the United States to various universities where people did all the things you do with software uh, printed on paper tapes. The same story basically goes for the Colossal Cave Adventure, except this game was written by Will Crowther in between 1975 and 1977, and it was written on the PDP-10. I suppose I should take a minute to discuss the PDPs. PDPs are uh, computers created by Digital Equipment Corporation. I believe it's the personal data processor, <laughs> although the personal is uh, – maybe it's professional. I, I Honestly, I'll, I, you can look up what PDP stands for. But the PDP systems were 
the hottest, coolest computers, basically, from the time they were introduced <laughs> until the time when they went out with the 11s. Uh, I think there were some PDPs after the 11s, but uh, anyway. Digital Equipment Corporation in the 1950s basically built the first computer that you could fit in one room and only looked like five refrigerators. There was massive shrinkage compared to things like ENIAC and other systems of the multiple rooms and vacuum tubes variety. The PDP-1 was one of the first uh, sort of mini computers, they called it, <laughs> which, you know, mini compared to a dump truck. And the PDP-1 was also one of the first computers that was cheap enough to put it into a college and allow kids to use it, right? Uh, and it also became so popular that it spawned the need for something that is called a time-sharing operating system. I believe I've covered this before. But a time-sharing system is really what the PDP-10 was all about, right? Like 10 releases of the PDP later. And uh, incidentally, as a side note, go Google PDP-8 and look at images of it. It's the coolest looking computer ever made. It came in orange and it came in purple. The PDP-10 was built for universities, for researchers, for businesses. It was the kind of system that, while the same size as the PDP-1, was thousands of times more powerful and could support many people using it at the same time. Now, the time-sharing operating system that was at the base of this system allowed for people to come in at midnight, as I said, with the hacker culture and program at night. And basically, that's what happened with Will Crowther. He had some free time on a PDP-10. God knows what hour of the day it was. If I had to guess, it was probably after midnight. And he sat down and he wrote a game. And this game was kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure, but kind of not. It was, you know, in a choose-your-own-adventure, you, you get choices at the end of each paragraph or whatever. You go to page two, go to page nine. Well, in, in this game, it was a little bit more free. You could call it like an open world choose-your-own-adventure. Uh, it begins with you are standing at the end of a small road. Before a small brick building around you is a forest, a small stream flows out of the building and down a gully. Well, what do you do? You go south, go east, go north, go west, go to, you know, you, you can do things. The, the sort of open, unrestricted gameplay that this insinuates, despite the fact that there are only a very few commands that you can actually give to the game that will work, it has this sort of illusion of an open play space. And it was really interesting to people when it first arrived. It would just take over computer departments. People would stay up all night trying to figure out how to beat the game because it was pretty difficult, especially since it was the first text adventure. And as anybody who knows about text adventures knows, they can be very confounding and very difficult to get through. So you can only imagine what it was like for the people playing the first text adventure who didn't know any of the tricks or any of the sort of cliches that came to be later. The other thing about a text-based game is that the game itself sort of replies to you when you make a mistake. So uh, later uh, later text adventures would really get extra sassy. The original Colossal Cave Adventure was a little sassy. At one point, you can fall into a pit, and the, the text line from the game says, you fell into a pit and broke every bone in your body. Now you've really done it. I'm out of orange smoke. You don't expect me to do a decent reincarnation without any orange smoke, do you? You know, it's like, it's like the it's personality behind it. So not only is it a challenging and interesting and new concept, but it also like crackles with life. Like you can really feel Will in there. And uh, Don Woods, who is the uh, other guy who really contributed a lot of content to this game. But, uh, you know, once again, like Space War, the line between who wrote the original and who added to it later becomes very, very blurry as you get hundreds of human hands working on it all across the United States and all these different systems and all these different platforms. It's being ported to different computers. I mean, Adventure was eventually released on basically all of the early 80s home computer platforms. It was also ported to Unix and other mainframe platforms. People wouldn't be able to do their work because somebody was monopolizing their, you know, their space by playing Adventure. It was kind of like the original Tetris 
just a little bit more niche, I guess, a smaller, smaller effect. But, you know, productivity dropped around any system that had adventure installed in it. And this was really the beginning of an era that, boy, adventure games have had their ups and downs. And uh, I, I'm not going to be able to cover all of this in this episode. We will be getting into it with people who have originally played them and then people who originally contributed to them. We'll see who we can get on here. But much like these games themselves, the, the people who really enjoy them seem to like extreme cryptic mystery sort of stuff. I mean, I guess that would make sense. You'd be like an Agatha Christie type person. But I, I think there's a very special sort of taste that enjoys a computer adventure game because some of them get so strange and out there in terms of their puzzle spaces and what is expected of you that it, it, it kind of it was almost incumbent upon the genre to die to get that kind of stuff to stop and just to reinvent itself, right? Like every other genre in video games is constantly reinventing itself. The first person perspective shooter with Doom, and then it got reinvented with Half-Life, and then it got reinvented with Counter-Strike, and then it got reinvented, you know, it just over and over. It's re- It's like we're taking this genre, but we're making a new game that has completely different mechanics and, and pulls and, and enjoyments, uh, but it's still basically the same genre, right? So the adventure game is laid out right here in Colossal Cave Adventure. And as we get into the graphical adventures of the 80s, such as the Lucasfilm games, uh, the Sierra Online games, uh, and uh, other games from many other companies in the industry that put out adventure games, this sort of extremely cryptic yet smirking at you personality behind the, the, the screen kind of motif, if you will, permeates. Uh, so next... To these text adventures, we also get Sierra Online. Uh, they launch in the late 70s with a game called Haunted House. I think it's Haunted House. It could be Haunted Mansion. That's <laughs> so long. Uh, anyway, there's, uh, two fella, there's a couple, Ken and Roberta Williams. And uh, they, for Mystery House, I'm sorry, the game is called Mystery House. They released Mystery House for the Apple II. And it is basically a little game where you go in and explore a house. And there's sort of mysteries. You know, it's not very graphical, but it's graphical enough to be interesting on the Apple II. Lines, you know, outlining the outside of a house. They become fairly successful and they start putting out all sorts of other adventures along this sort of, this genre, right? This sort of exploration, find things, solve puzzles, move around kind of uh, genre. I, I don't know what to call it. The games that they start to produce become extremely personality focused and story driven, as you would expect from something that maybe came out of the text adventure uh, world. Uh, and one of their hallmark series is uh, King's Quest. They did a game called Adventure in Serenia, which is in theory the prequel to King's Quest, but they did six King's Quest. I think there's seven or eight of them now, but originally there were five and then there was a sixth one that came out on CD. But King's Quest was the absolute core of the Sierra business for years every game that they produced was basically king's quest redressed they had king's quest space quest police quest gabriel knight leisure suit larry quest for glory quest for glory is terrific it's a role-playing game uh they also put out lots of other games under the sierra brand but really the core were these person walking around a hand animated colorful landscape looking for stuff adventure games and now when I said before that these games kind of destroyed themselves with their esoteric nature or the really difficult nature of their puzzles, this is absolutely where it begins. King's Quest, though it is a happy sort of light game with smiles and it's I grew up on King's Quest, too. I played it as an eight year old. Right. Like and the game is like steeped in fairy tale stuff. You know, there's a goodie basket that you're supposed to take to Little Red Riding Hood house. And you know, it's just 
sort of like you're traipsing through a Hansel and Gretel style forest. But just like those old grim fairy tales, the game is just as grim as the actual fairy tales. Like, you know, we, we think of these old grim fairy tales as being wonderful stories to tell to children. But if you actually read the originals, most of them are absolutely horrifying and involve children dying. And that is exactly how King's Quest works. The game looks happy and lovely, but the, the absolute core of that game is that you are going to die over and 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 over. And you will never, ever expect it coming. It'll be like, oh, look, here's a room. There's an apple. I'll eat the apple. Oh, the apple's poisoned. I melted and died. Start over. Oh, here's a here's a, you know, an empty building. I walk inside. Oh, no, there's a goblin outside that stabs you and you can't stop it. I mean, these games really just force you to play in a straight line across the, from beginning to end uh, and sort of like, go here, get this, go here, do this. And, you know, that's that's fine. I'm not criticizing it. What I am sort of doing is contextualizing what it was like to really play these games originally. They were extremely confounding games. They did not hold your hand. As an example, Police Quest, the beginning of that game, I mean, you're a cop, you know, you go to briefing and everything, you walk outside, you're supposed to get in your car and drive off. And like, I remember distinctly playing this game as a kid and being very excited to like, all right, I'm going to get to go drive the cop car. I walk outside, I walk right up to the cop car, get in, turn it on, game over, you lose, you did not inspect the cop car. You have to walk a circle around the cop car before you get in. (laughs) Or else you lose, it's not a demerit or anything. This also plays into, there were a lot of ancillary materials that came with these games. So, for example, if I had read the manual to Police Quest and not just been, you know, a 12-year-old kid jumping on the game, uh, I might have learned that you were supposed to do an inspection of your car before you actually drive out because, you know, they included a thick manual like that. The other side of this sort of adventure coin and the confounding games thing is another company that put out amazing manuals, amazing materials, which was Infocom. Infocom is the company that put out Zork, which is like the next adventure. It's not adventure, but it's completely inspired by adventure. It is the quintessential text adventure game, and it is where you will be eaten by a group, as the game says. It is a phenomenally successful game, and it sparks many sequels, and it sparks an entire company called Infocom, where they put out dozens of these interactive text adventure games, most of which you can play online for free now. I encourage you to go find them. But again, these games are incredibly unforgiving. I mean, we we sort of think of adventure games as almost quote unquote casual games or something, but you die way more in these games than you will in Mario. In the Zork games, you know, anytime you're in the dark, you'll be eaten by a Gru. Trying to figure out what to do is just monstrously difficult. Some of the things you have to figure out, I don't know how people figured them out, honestly. There are stories of people playing the original Colossal Cave Adventure and literally just hacking the code to figure out what the hell to do. In fact, uh, Halt and Catch Fire points this out, I believe, in season two? No, season one. Uh, and, and anybody who is out there, I highly encourage you to watch Halt and Catch Fire. Yes, it's not 100% nerd technically correct, but I do love that show because honestly, they recreate Habitat in the second season. and We relaunched Habitat, so <laughs> I'm partial to it. So getting back to the game, uh, in, in anyway, in, in uh, Halt and Catch Fire, they, uh, they agree to keep only the employees that hacked uh, Colossal Cave Adventure to figure it out. Those are the employees they keep, not the ones who just like played and could figure it out. But that's an example of sort of, again, this hacker mindset that was existed back in those days and around these systems and around these games. Now, there is another company that made adventure games, and they did not necessarily make these crazy, difficult, hard to figure out adventure games. And that company was Lucasfilm Games. Their first adventure game was Maniac Mansion, and it was not a game that required you to just go straight line from beginning to end. It was a game that allowed you to make all sorts of different choices along the way. And in fact, began with a choice of which kids are you going to choose? You Depending on which kids you choose, you have a different, different experience and access to different things that happen in the game. A tremendously innovative adventure game, and it spawned many other games from that company in the same vein. 
uh, Zach McCracken, Grim Fandango. You got your Full Throttle, The Dig, all of those classic Lucas adventure games begin here. I'm not going to go too far into them because I think I can get a number of those people to come on the show, and I would prefer to cover them with some of the creators of those games. But I will say that Maniac Mansion's Genesis was basically at the same time as Habitat, and the original engine, which is used in Habitat to render on the screen, is basically like Maniac Mansion Engine 1.0. And if you're interested in any of this, go to our GitHub page. All of the code for that is open sourced. Uh, It's completely available to you if you can read PL1, (laughs) Programming Language 1. The other thing that comes out of this adventure industry is eventually the idea that these games are going to be adult games. I mean, they really are adult games to begin with, but, you know, Sierra branches out into some Mother Goose style games. And then we get the Lowly Worm, Richard Scary kind of point and click CD ROM games. That kind of stuff permeates in the education market, point and click. The, the interaction method of go here, find something, move here, go to the next screen, find something, use the thing, advance the game. That exists in the education market. But in the adult, I don't want to say professional gamer, but like in the, you know, the adult market where the money conceivably is because people are buying the games with their own money. There is a major change that happens in the early 90s and that is Myst. And uh, yeah, I keep talking about these games being cryptic and difficult. Myst is the king of that. Oh my God, that game is in, uh, insane. Like you flip a button over here and then you got to wander all the way to the other side of the island to figure out what it did. So frustrating. <laughs> but beautiful game. Incredible advancing graphics, and I do really like cryptic games. I mean, I, I rip on these games for being difficult and cryptic. I'm sort of ripping on them from the perspective of like Joe Schmo walking up to them. I love games that like are completely cryptic and hard to figure out because that's what it was like for me as a child when I had a big stack of random discs on the Atari ST and no manuals to go with them, and those games were very cryptic. But Myst, extremely cryptic and difficult and weird, and it sets a tone For the next few years, you get other games like you get Seventh Guest, you get Obsidian, you get Iron Helix, like a lot of CD-ROM games take this path where it's a lot of art, but it's, you know, screen, 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 find the thing, flip the switch, puzzles, art and puzzles. So that sort of bifurcates off on the adventure game. The dude wandering around on screen looking through things is also sort of going to the educational market. And there are a few more games coming out, like I said, Full Throttle, Gabriel Knight series. But what I have to say is that when I was at Computer Gaming World in 2001, we were all lamenting the fact that there were very few adventure games. The Longest Journey was coming out. There was Sanitarium. There were some good games. Don't get me wrong. What we were lamenting was there weren't many of them coming out and that those games that were coming out, we could see in the sales were just doing terribly. Like Grim Fandango came out, as I said in the the Danny O'Dwyer video. Grim Fandango came out and we were in little mourning for the game. We're like, this is a great game. Nobody's ever going to play it. This is a terrific game. Nobody's ever going to play it. Gave it great reviews. Uh, but like I said, it sold something like 10,000 copies in the first year. And that's just absolute death for a multi-million dollar game company. And we knew when that game came out, we we're like, this is going to be the last one of these we get. But the other side of that coin is that at the exact same time this was happening, Gabriel Knight 3 came out, right? And that game had puzzles in it that were so ridiculous that it made people on the CGW staff never want to play an adventure game in their lives. Let me just, this was the example. I think it was Robert Coffey who did the, the review of this. And Robert was a brilliant, brilliant writer who really, really ripped it apart. Pretty sure it was Robert. The puzzle was that you needed to disguise yourself. So in order to do this, you had to steal some maple syrup and some duct tape and then go to a fence out in back of the building, place the duct tape over the fence, leave, and then come back and hope uh, a, a cat would have gone through the hole in the fence. And then you remove the fur from the duct tape, place it on the maple syrup and use it as a fake mustache. 
yeah, that was that was the end of adventure games for us at CGW. We we're like, this is so stupid. There's no logic to this whatsoever. This is not a game. This is like trying to figure out what somebody decided we would have to do. And that was really where adventure games kind of died. But then there was an immediate rebirth. Right. I mean, they weren't commercially successful at that time. They weren't particularly innovative, except for a very few games, which were extremely innovative. Don't get me wrong. Sanitarium and Longest Journey, very innovative. Longest Journey is like the deepest philosophical game ever released if you can get through all that text. But this, the genre was stagnant. I'm not sure what brought it back. I, don't, I think that's a whole episode. We'd have to trace those roots. Do you guys have any ideas of what brought it back? Uh, there's certainly some games we could point to. Uh, Tim Schafer founding his own company is definitely a good enough reason to to have them come back. But honestly, I don't know. I think the internet just made it so that people who liked these games could communicate with each other and get a hold of them for the first time, as opposed to before, where they were just really not marketed very well at the end of the 90s because there was no return. But that's a story for another time. Uh, hopefully, I've covered the adventure games and I haven't been too cynical and nasty about them. I'm not my most favorite genre, but I have played the heck out of them. And uh, if you're looking for games to play, I would recommend the Legend of Carandia series. I would recommend Space Quest. It's hysterical. Oh, Freddy Farkas, Frontier Pharmacist is probably the strangest of all of them. So go out there and take a look. And thanks a lot for listening. See you next week. All right. Thank you, Alex. Have you guys been playing any adventure games lately? I know I've been, as far as like other games, uh, I've recently downloaded yet to bring it on though. I have, uh, I downloaded this game called Hades from Supergiant Games. It was released in mid-September earlier this year. It's a, it's almost like a watching an anime kind of, as far as the art style goes. I love the art style of Hades. It looks amazing. This is a roguelike dungeon crawler. You're making your way through the circles of hell trying to bring yourself back alive, I believe. Well, technically, that's your father's ability. Well, like, yeah, it's like your father's ability. It's like, I'm still, you slash out in this and then you just go explore this really beautiful looking world and that's one of the things that i like about games like this and then i think it would other games would benefit from is there's so much there's so much of a push for realistic graphics when i think just creating your own art style and going heavily on textures with your own art style to create a world around i think that will lend you more than like a realistic type game there's so many more capabilities that you can just go with that mm-hmm. i think my favorite part of that game so far i've heard about is um the trash talk be- before you fight the boss. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because every time, I mean, unless you're pretty good or some speedrunner, you, you can get them in just one go, but I think people need to keep running back. So so every time you come back to a boss after you defeated it or just got killed by it last time, you have a different trash talk. And there's so many different revisions that I... I couldn't remember. That, I like that. And the I, variance, it's like, yeah. so you're continuously coming across this, you, can, you continuously come across a boss, and then if the, depending on how many times you die, the thing is going to be different. If you keep dying on a boss, I would hope that there is, like the boss just says, it's like, uh, you again, huh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. whoever, whoever designed and programmed and record this, you're a genius. You're there's so much work to do in order to accomplish that thing. You, I, I just. You hear that, Super Giant Games? You done good. You done very good. Yeah, I'm excited to play it. It looks. Uh, I always like the like Greek mythology. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, this is like a loose. Oh yeah. Uh, anime. Who doesn't like it? Hades, Zeus. Oh yeah. Hades, Everything. Zeus, uh, Ares, Poseidon. 
Yep, Poseidon. Yeah, guy, everyone knows it. Everyone knows it. Athena. You'll figure it out. <laughs> like, but I, I will recommend it. I've, I've gotten many recommendations. Everything that I've seen looks amazing from it. Uh, if well, and I think that would be good for y'all to check out in your free time. Support indie developers. Super Giant Games. Hades on Steam. Looks gorgeous. Local team. They're from San Francisco. Oh, local. Support local teams. But we'll get them back. That that would be interesting to eventually maybe talk to some more indie developers. Maybe we can get like them on and talk about this at some to some extent. But we'll see. Mm-hmm. You know, reaching feelers out there. We'll figure it out. <laughs> We're getting into the holiday season here. Maybe y'all will see some new uh, consoles underneath your trees this year. Hopefully, I mean, I, you know, I could always hope Santa will, you know, leave me a nice little. Well, I mean, it's not little. It's a PS Five, but you know, <laughs> a nice big PS Five under the tree. It's not feeling that good in in the PSN. Looking at your friend is seeing everyone have a PS Five logo, but mm-hmm. just you using still using the yeah. PS Four logo. You know, uh, yeah, I really want to get. Yeah, we'll now. see. I mean, I think that just this whole generation, this whole generation, it's so weird to think of that it's coming to a close. But we that means that only means we have a new generation to look forward to and complain about. Uh, <laughs> right. That's a good one. I want to get to everybody. Thank you for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you have any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, uh, shoot us an email at info at We'd like to send out a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our Patreon supporters who keep the made afloat. Patreon donors will be getting this podcast one week before it goes public on the main major streaming services, and we'll continue that with future episodes every week. And don't forget that this episode was a Patreon poll episode as well, so keep looking on the Patreon for more polls, for more input on episodes. Till then, I'm Red. I'm Chen. And I'm Miles. Thanks. We'll talk to you next time. See you next time, everyone.